Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day uh, just to be alive and to experience and learn about your love and the freedom you purchased for us through the blood of your precious Son. We thank you so much for being willing to give him up for us, even though he was righteous and innocent. You sacrificed him for our sins on our behalf so that whoever trusts in him with a humble heart will be saved. Father, we are eternally grateful for this gift of salvation, and we ask that you continue to help us in this study to be more appreciative of what you've done once for all. Father, we also ask that you bless those who are sick and struggling in our congregation. You know they are many, and you know their every difficulty. We ask that you comfort them as only you can and uh, give them peace throughout the going through. And Father, we ask that your spirit guide us and direct us this evening and help us understand spiritual things which we cannot understand ourselves. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. Well, again, we're nothing more than vessels of mercy, part three. Um, I want to start tonight with an analogy that the Spirit gave me this morning. And uh, just sit back and listen for a minute and just kind of, you know, use this picture as what's going on right now. God has been taking us to the ground floor, so to speak, reminding us of where we came from. So picture yourself in a high rise at the penthouse on the top floor. You're there because of your relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that's the only reason we could ever be in that position with God. All promotion comes from Him, as we know. And every once in a while, he wants to remind us where we came from, what many Bible scholars would call total depravity or the total depravity of man. So the spirit of Jesus asks you to get in the elevator and take it down from the penthouse to the basement. And it's one of those real creepy basements that other people don't even know is there, if you know what I mean. Like the elevator doesn't even have a button that goes down there. But only you and Jesus know where that secret button is to get you down there. And you reach the very bottom and get off the elevator. And you see all the cobwebs and it smells just horrible. And you see the signs of your past wretched decisions and all the skeletons in the closet. It's a place of darkness and sadness and memories of being trapped in deception and even evil. As the Bible says, we're all born in sin. And because of that, we sin and we have sinned. And thank God Jesus doesn't show anybody else our basement, but he knows our basement very intimately, each and every one of us. So every once in a while, God wants to remind us of where we came from, of our own horribleness and wretchedness. 
and it may be different for each person. Um, it is, but it's still wretched. It's still ugly. It's still uh, exceedingly sinful, we might say. And as we've been learning, even the good we did in the past was the dressing up of the pig in an attempt to earn God's favor. In essence, to try to fool God. I'm not sure if we have uh, Miss Piggy. Yes, we do. It is a good visual aid. Because no matter how much you dress it up, it's still a pig. And that is our sinful nature. Without Christ, we're stuck. We have no hope without his uh, payment for us. So that good that we try to produce to make it up to God or whatever our motivation might be, that's in your disgusting basement too, in God's eyes. So this process of revisiting our secret basements is a good one for all of us so we avoid become, becoming familiar with His grace and His mercy. This is super valuable. You know, it's not always pleasant, it's not always fun, but it's super valuable to getting us to a place where we become set free because we know we have no hope without His grace and mercy. And there's a tendency as a believer to once you get going in the spiritual life and, you know, you start learning and figuring it out and obeying God's principles, there's a tendency to let it go to your head and think there's something good about you, which is the biggest lie that Satan wants us to fall for, one of the biggest. But it's all about the cross. It's all about the fact that Christ paid for every single sin you could ever commit on the cross. And without that, we're still stuck in that disgusting, horrible, smelly, pitch-black basement with chains on. That's our sinful nature without God. So one day he's going to take us back up to the penthouse. I don't know when. But right now his spirit has us exploring our wretched basements some more. On the board, through Christ... Worthless, evil vessels like ourselves have been brought into the fold. Not only did Christ bring us into the fold, but we were made brand new and made into something with eternal value. This is God's perspective on the board. This isn't your perspective. Your opinion might disagree. It doesn't really matter because God's word is God's word. And he knows all things. And this is his perspective, according to the scriptures. Fallen man, which includes every man and woman and child, is evil from God's perspective, being born in sin. Born in sin. And it's God's perspective that counts, not man's opinion about himself. And that's God's perspective. And that's why we go to the world, uh, the word, don't go to the world, that was a misnomer. We go to the word because the world is continually lying to us about our own goodness. What do you see on TV? What do you hear from motivational speakers even? You can do it. You can be good enough. You can improve yourself. And what? just step back and look at the subtlety behind what's going on there. You can be good enough without God's help. That's what's going on. And they, they won't tell you about sin. They'll try to avoid sin. Even though everyone sins, maybe the people in the same room that they're speaking to have sinned against them. But let's put on a good show here. Let's talk about the positive. Well, how about talking about eternity without God? 
How about, how am I going to pay for my sins? So that's the reality, and God's perspective is what's important. So we go to the Word of God to learn the truth and ultimately be set free. So turn in your Bibles again to Ephesians 2, verse 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Again, the point on the board. Through Christ, worthless evil vessels like ourselves have been brought into the fold. Not only did Christ bring us into the fold, but we were made brand new through faith in Him, and we were made into something of eternal value. Ephesians 2, verse 3. We're going to look at that again, but let's start in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So there's God's perspective. There's God's word. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Nothing good about you. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. There's nobody that didn't live in the lusts of their flesh. And your lust might be different than the next person's lusts. You know, it's not always what you think it is, but we all live in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. (laughs) That's God's perspective, whether you like it or not. So on the board, we were born in sin. Also, the Bible would say, of the flesh. But now, if you've placed your trust in Christ, you're born again, or born of the Spirit, according to John chapter 3. Hallelujah. Praise God. It's not about us. Praise God. Thank God it's not about us and us getting over the, the, the hurdles, so to speak, on our own. Impossible. You're born in sin. You can't do anything that pleases holy, righteous God. But know what? He says, I'll let you be born again. I'll make you totally brand new and perfect in my eyes if you trust in my son, the only perfect one who paid your price. So again, on the board, we were born in sin of the flesh, but now if you've placed your trust in Christ, you're born again of the Spirit. John chapter 3. So the Spirit's also been on us about motivation. Since we're now born again, hopefully, I can't, you know, don't know everybody's heart, but if you've surrendered to Christ, you're born again. And he's been saying, what's the intention of your heart as you obey God now? What's the intention of your heart? We know by now, regarding our motivation, the best motivation is love, the love of God. That's the great motivation. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, for Christ's love compels us. So hopefully we do what we do because of love and gratitude for the Lord and what he did for us, not because we think we're worthy or we can earn our way with God. But here's the problem. We still carry around this flesh, this body with a sin nature in the, you know, flowing in the blood, as you know, the Bible tells us. So we're not perfect. Even though we're saved, if we've come to Christ, we're not perfect. And even within each day, we can find things we did from good motivation, maybe for love for the Lord, 
And in the same day, things we did from bad motivation, for selfishness, out of fear, out of worry, whatever. Bad motivations. But God's been on us. He's been like, examine your motivations. Why are you doing what you do? Why, why are you obeying me? And these are subtle motivations that the Spirit is ferreting out of us, trying to get us to examine, honestly, our own heart, our own inner motivation. So a repeated point has been in this series, we must never confuse goodness in our lives as belonging to ourselves. It's real easy to do. We must never confuse goodness in our lives as belonging to ourselves. We are solely vessels of mercy. Another way to put it would be, we are nothing without the Lord. Nothing. We saw that in a couple of scriptures uh, on Tuesday. The word nothing, describing us. We are nothing without the Lord. To accept this, now we're talking about your own hearts between you and God. To accept this truth about you is to be set free by it, knowing it does not depend upon us, but upon God who is merciful. And that's taken from Romans chapter 9, as we'll see coming up. To accept this truth that you are nothing without the Lord, that means you can then be set free by it instead of struggling and trying to earn your way. Because until you admit it doesn't depend on you, thank God again, but it depends upon God who's merciful, that's where the chains come off. And that's what God hopes for us as our Heavenly Father. He hopes that we see that as His children. And to do this again, we must come to a point where we agree with God about our total depravity. We don't want to because we want to take some credit. But the Bible says we're totally depraved. And we'll see more of that coming up, which we touched on on Tuesday. But here's something the Galatians didn't understand on the board. Our obedience to God, if it's godly, has nothing to do with self. It has to do with gratitude for the Lord. In fact, it's getting self out of the way and listening to the Spirit and the Word. It's living in the new creature, not working on the old. And this is a problem in a lot of Christian churches even. They're, they're, they're kind of taught incorrectly. A lot of pastors, unfortunately, don't even go to the Scriptures that much. And they're taught to improve the old, you know, to be a better person for God. When the only way you can do that is if you rely on God's Word and God's Spirit to guide you, because without His power, you're a wretch. I'm a wretch. So again, our obedience, if it's godly, has nothing to do with self. It has to do with gratitude or love for the Lord. In fact, it's getting self out of the way and listening to the Spirit and the Word it's living in the new creature that God gave us when we trusted in Christ, not working on the old creature. So that's the proper perspective or attitude of obedience as we follow God. And again, the flesh wants a little bit of credit for that obedience. Look what I did, right? Look what I did. So-and-so didn't obey God like that or follow God in that way. And that's the flesh being intrusive, 
on your spiritual life, trying to sneak in and steal the credit, when anything good about you, the Bible says, is from God as a gift. And even the faith to obey him is from God. He even gave us the faith, the scripture says. So the Galatians got deceived because they were working on the old creature. We saw this uh, the last couple lessons. They were trying to improve the flesh even after salvation. And therefore they were distorting the gospel. They were distorting the good news. The good news includes the fact that it doesn't depend on us. If it did, that wouldn't be very good news, right? <laughs> because you know how that goes, right? You have two good weeks, and then you get two bad weeks. You get three good weeks and one horrible week. And it's just the way it goes because your flesh, again, tries to sneak in, even when you're relying on God, relying on God, you know, obeying his word, uh, in humility even. And the flesh creeps in on you once in a while and surprises you. So... The Galatians were distorting the gospel. How were they doing that on the board? In Galatians 3.3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul saying, I told you the gospel. I told you the Holy Spirit will help you believe if you're willing. And you accepted that. And now you're trying to perfect yourself by the flesh. You're trying to mature by the flesh and your own power. You're being foolish. They knew they were saved by hearing with faith. So why did they try to be perfected by the flesh? They were seduced, if you will, by other people, religious people, who said, you should do this so that we can boast in your flesh. There's something good about you. So why do we try to make ourself look good when ourself according to the scriptures, is dead and wretched in God's eyes. Here's why we do it in Galatians 6, 12a, to make a good showing in the flesh. And this, that sums up religion right there. That's why we, we don't consider ourselves a religious church, and that word is negative, because it implies working for it, trying to earn your way. Um, it comes back to pride, basically. And Satan loves to sneak pride into the churches. Take some credit away from God. So this series is all about having a right understanding of our flesh. What we were born into. Let's remember the flesh is schizophrenic. This came out on Tuesday. And again, no offense to anyone that has that disease. They may be struggling from that. But that's a good description for the flesh. Despite its desire to sin and rebel, it also wants to put on a good show and appear to be good before God and man. Well, make up your mind, flesh. Which one is it? This is part of what we might call the mystery of iniquity. The mystery of our wretchedness. Who can understand it? And all of these things and everything in between are in the filthy basement that we're looking at right now. What man is capable of is not even understood by man. If you were in the right circumstances, or we might even say the wrong circumstances, if you were in the worst circumstances, you don't even know what you're capable of. And neither do I. 
because the flesh is wicked and it's evil and it will do whatever it can to maintain self or protect self. It won't do the right thing, especially under pressure. It'll be in self-preservation mode. The flesh is wicked. For example, how else can you explain, except for our fallen sinful nature, that man can be judgmental and yet do the same things he's judging others for? How do you explain that? I've been there. Be judgmental and then do the same exact things you just judge the person for. How do you explain that man can show love to somebody and also steal from that person? Can you think of somebody in your life that did that, maybe? Maybe like living schizophrenically in a way, like back and forth. How else can you explain how a man can gossip about someone and then help him in the area of their life that they're criticizing? Ever done that? I'm guilty of all of them, so I guess, I guess I shouldn't be up here. These things are all wretched in God's eyes. Everything I just mentioned is wretched in God's eyes. He's like, wait a minute. <laughs> you're criticizing someone for that and then you're doing it? You're going to judge someone and then you're going to do it? What's wrong with you? And they're both evil, right? The judging someone is evil. And then doing the very thing that you judged, which is probably sinful, which is why you judged it in the first place on your self-righteous high horse, and then the next day you did it. How do you explain that? Unless you admit that we have a fallen nature within us that we were born with that was passed down to us all the way back to Adam. So the flesh lives in the sphere of death. That's where it, that's where it resides. It does things that are wretched, sometimes unexplainable. And we shouldn't just think of things like murder and adultery. You know, that's what every... Not every. A lot of religious people like to use, though, as examples, right? I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. And then they don't know the Bible says that Jesus says, if you think it, you did it. So if you've ever thought it in your whole life, you did it. You're guilty. And then, on top of that, if that's not your area of weakness, what about the self-righteous sins that we just mentioned? The judging and the gossip, for example. So the flesh is simply evil. It's sinful. And we all carry around the same flesh regardless of what our particular weaknesses are. So what hope do we have? According to God's perspective, man's flesh is worthless, including the good stuff he tries to do to earn his way. Worthless. We also took a lesson from Agur's prayer in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 1 through 9 on the board. And what we learned was do we actively pray for protection from ourselves, aware of the constant temptation to rely on the flesh? If not today, maybe tomorrow. Maybe today you didn't rely on the flesh, but tomorrow the flesh might creep in and try to take some credit. You might rely on the flesh for your strength, for your wisdom, for how to get through things, etc. So as part of our prayer life, praying for protection from the flesh? It should be because that's one of our enemies. Think of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Just give me my daily bread, Father, and protect me from temptation. 
Those things were in Agur's prayer in Proverbs 30. And we've also seen repeatedly the warning to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. This is another curse of the flesh. That we don't boast about what we perceive as good about us. For example, on the board in Proverbs 26.12, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. And on the board also, Romans 12.16, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind or arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. This is a curse of the flesh that we have to be on guard for. And we've seen a lot about, actually, true wisdom, God's wisdom, versus pseudo-wisdom, man's version of wisdom, which the Bible calls foolish. So on the board, man must humble himself before God, admitting his foolishness compared to God, before he can see the light of the truth and be truly wise. And we got two more scriptures. Let's look at this one more time. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 3.18. 1 Corinthians 3.18. Again, man must humble himself before God, admitting his foolishness compared to God, before he can see the light of the truth and be truly wise. 1 Corinthians 3.18, how does it start? Let no man deceive himself. That tells us that men deceive themselves. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. And then look at 1 Corinthians 8, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 8, 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known what he ought to know. <laughs> the minute we become arrogant, we're going to miss something. The minute we become arrogant, um, we're going to miss an important piece of the puzzle. And as came out on Tuesday, if you suppose you already know this subject, you haven't yet known it as you ought to know it. That's what God would say. Because we never know it all. We never, in this life, have it all figured out. I don't care if you study the Bible for 50 years, as Lois has, right? <laughs> it's a compliment. But it doesn't matter. You never get it all. Never. And the minute you think you get it all, God has it worked. That's the way life works. The minute you think you get it all, you're going to miss something or you're going to stumble. And you might even be shown a fool in some area of your life. So it really pays to stay humble. So on the board, let the love of God fuel you to be humble and want to learn more of his perspective. Let that happen for you. Don't fight it. Don't try to, you know, butt in with the flesh and take some credit and, you know, argue with God. Why would you argue with someone that has all knowledge? Let the love of God, he didn't have to come save us at all. We're going to get to that again, but let the love of God fuel you to be humble and want to learn more of his perspective. 
that's obviously the only thing that really counts in life. So there's great value in recalling where we came from and in understanding our total depravity without God. Seeing our ugliness leads to more freedom and appreciation. And this has been a repeating point too. And that is that to the degree we admit our ugliness and depravity without the Lord, that's the degree to which freedom will be experienced in your heart, in your soul. To the degree we're willing to admit our ugliness and depravity and sinfulness and helplessness is the degree to which we'll experience freedom. Otherwise, you'll be trapped in religion and you won't be free. You'll be walking around with chains. So on the board, we saw this on Tuesday. We will be set free because even though we are in horror as we realize our total depravity in that dark secret basement of ours, we're in awe of God's mercy towards us all the more. So this, again, is a good thing that we're doing. You might look in the mirror and say to God, you saved that monster? You came for me? The one that's both legalistic and at the same time immoral in thoughts or actions? And the same person that justifies everything? We talked about on Tuesday, the greater the depth of the pit we're in, the greater we appreciate our rescue. So do you admit Honestly, what the Bible says is true about you? Do you admit the depths of your sin before God? On the board, our Lord has rescued us from the infinitely deep pit of hell, which even Jesus said all man deserves. He even rescued us from eternal death. So therefore, we should be infinitely more grateful than for any blessing we have in this life. And again, you know, this is something that is hard to grasp. How do you grasp infinity? How do you grasp forever as a man? You, you really can't. But through prayer and humility and submission to the word, he can show us the gravity of the situation and show us the great depths that he saved us from. We were all locked up in that filthy, pitch dark, wretched basement with no way out. We were born in captivity to sin and death. And it was impossible from our position to get out. That's what the Bible says. And only Jesus had the key to that wretched basement of ours. But he had to shed his blood to get it. He had to satisfy the perfect justice of God for us. But he did it willingly. And that's why he is the key. So this is why it's very good to remember what we're talking about and also the sacrifice he made to rescue us forever. So our conclusion on Tuesday was, you saved a wretch like me. All the glory and honor has to go to God, our God and Savior. And there's no room for self-righteousness. Turn again to Romans 7.21. How can we take any credit if we're honest about our sin. And the Bible even calls us a wretch. Sorry if you don't like that word, but 
The Bible doesn't pull any punches, you know? And man wrote this stuff down through the inspiration of the Spirit. What man wants to admit he's a wretch? Not many. But the men who wrote the Bible did because the Spirit had them and said, tell the truth. <laughs> Let's be real. Again, on the board, all the glory and honor has to go to our God and Savior. There's no room for self-righteousness. So Romans 7.21, Paul writes, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Can anyone relate with that? I can every day. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. And this is the Apostle Paul, 20 years after he was saved. He's still struggling. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. So there we see the battle goes on. And Paul fully and openly knew his wretchedness. And that should be an encouragement to us all. And then we saw Revelation 3.17. Go there again. Revelation 3.17 So we just read in Romans, Paul fully and openly admitting his wretchedness per the Spirit's encouragement, we might say. But in Revelation 3.17, we see believers, supposed believers in Christ, who did not admit their wretchedness. But Jesus told them the truth. Look at Revelation 3.17. And remember as we read this, Jesus also said in the Gospels, he said, what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. Right? So look at Revelation 3.17. Because you say, okay, these people with their mouths, they were, they were openly saying, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. But you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I hope you see how we believers can fall into self-righteousness and a denial of our wretchedness, wanting to claim some good, wanting to claim some credit in the picture of God's plan. But it's all because of his mercy that we're anything, including saved. So this on the board is the repetitive, simple, but really important point that we've been seeing all series long. Oh, sorry, I had that on the board for you. A little extra work for you. We are 100% vessels of his mercy, and that's it. That's the point. We are nothing more than vessels of mercy. There's no contribution man can make without the power of Christ. Not that God accepts, anyway. Man can fool himself all he wants. He can practice religion all he wants, which is always about teaching man how to earn, earn his way or earn, earn God's favor but it's all dung in God's eyes, as we saw on Dung Tuesday, two days ago. 
It's all dung in God's eyes. And that's a biblical statement on the board. Many a man is tricked into believing his own goodness is good enough when without God is just excrement covered by a layer of powdered sugar. Let that visual sink in because it's biblical. That is man's goodness without the Lord. That's how God sees man's goodness. A piece of excrement covered by powdered sugar. You can try to cover it up all you want. You can put it on a nice little dessert dish with a nice little dainty fork. Make it look even better. That, God's opinion of man's goodness, man's righteousness. Now why? We talked about this. We're going to get to this again. Why is that God's opinion of us? Why doesn't he accept our good? We're going to get to this again. How about when Paul called all of his good accomplishments before Christ dung on the board in Philippians 3, 7, and 8 in the King James? But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And don't forget, Paul was a genius. He was a scholar. He uh, had it all in terms of the world's viewpoint. He called it dung. We could use other words. But he said, it's all nothing. It's all garbage. It's all disgusting without Christ. It's meaningless. It's empty without Christ. And this, what was it, this is what was in Paul's heart and is recorded for us by the Holy Spirit. And remember how Holy Scripture calls our righteous deeds a filthy garment, which in the Hebrew means a woman's menstrual rag. On the board in Isaiah 64, 6 in the American Standard Version. For we are all become as one that is unclean, and all of our righteousnesses are as a polluted garment. That's very polite. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So this is God's perspective, not man's. God says all of man's righteousnesses are a polluted garment. And some of you might have to do a double take right now because it doesn't say man's sins are a polluted garment. It says man's righteousnesses. It's gross in his eyes. So why, again, is man's righteousness, I mean, he's trying his best, right? We're trying to be good on our own. Why doesn't God accept our, our good attempts without Christ? A pretty simple reason. This was the analogy given on Tuesday from the Spirit regarding man's polluted righteousness. It's like adding just one small piece of dung to a gallon of pure spring water. It's now tainted. Right? Isn't the whole thing tainted? Isn't the whole thing ruined? That's what sin does to man's righteousness. If you're already a sinner, which the Bible says you are, then anything thing good you do is already tainted with sin. It's undrinkable, if you will. And that's why God is disgusted with man's righteous deeds. So the only hope is a perfect one, a righteous one, and that is Christ. That's why the only thing that saves anybody is a surrender.
to Christ as Lord and Savior because without Him, we could, we could save the world. We could go out there and save the world. You do that without Christ, God will not accept it because you are a sinner. So I hope you see the problem. I mean, many of you know this already, at least some of it. I hope you see the problem in the big picture and the perspective of God. This is how God looks at it. This is what he sees. Until we believe this about ourselves personally, we're not going to be set free. We might not even be saved. On the board, each of us in our own souls need to reckon that there is nothing good about ourselves without Christ. Until we do that, we're going to be trapped in religion. And we're going to be striving and never able to reach satisfaction, if you will. Never, never be able to satisfy God. So until you give up and surrender to the Lord from a place of total depravity without Him, you will not be set free. You'll be in bondage to self. And we're talking about sanctification here, too, not just salvation. We're talking about living in the freedom that Christ purchased for you. And the only way to do that is to drop the self thing and admit its wretchedness on its own. As we've heard a lot over the last few years, uh, this also came up on Tuesday, unless the Lord changes us, we're not changed. You're much better off just admitting you can't do it than you are to try to stay on the little wheel like the hamster and try to change yourself. Just stop it. The Bible says just stop it. Just surrender. And on the board, God's gracious. And only the Lord can make something totally useless useful. But he won't do it without your surrender. But he wants to make you useful. He wants to make you good and righteous. But he can only do that through Christ. So here's an exercise for us. And I ask that you complete this sentence on the board in your soul. Were it not for the Lord's mercy towards me, what would you say? Honestly, were it not for the Lord's mercy, where would you be? And if you're honest, you have to be brought low by this exercise. And the point of the Spirit is that's a very good place to be, to be humbled. And the Bible even says, blessed are the lowly. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is good. Why is this good? Who wants to be poor in spirit? Because when we're humble like this, God can use us. This is good. And that's why this whole process, this whole going down to the basement floor is so valuable. Because God can only use the humble. He can't use the arrogant. If you continue in arrogance and self-striving, you're going to be useless in his hands to do anything you know, truly good. But if you're willing and pliable and you admit you know nothing and that you are nothing and you go to the Lord and say, Lord, whatever you want to do, I know I'm nothing without Christ. Have mercy on me, the sinner. 
and use me. That person God can use. And that's what he's waiting for. Instead of us being arrogant and therefore unusable and possibly our lives being shortened because of it, because we're unuseful to the master. Why are we born again and saved? Why does God save us? He saves us and elevates us with Christ so that we can then go out and do good in the power of Christ. He actually wants us to do good as we've been studying. Well, if you're not willing, what use are you going to be to the master? Pretty much none. Unless you repent and turn to him in humility. So let's get some context here on our subject of vessels of mercy. Uh, we've got about 15 minutes left, so turn to Romans 9, verse 1. Romans 9, 1. Took us two and a half lessons to get to our main passage on vessels of mercy. But it's all good. Romans 9, 1. And we're just going to read through the chapter here for context. Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul was very sad for his Jewish brothers who refused to accept Christ being Lord and Messiah. So in verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all, all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there's also Rebekah, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Let's pause there for a minute. Again, it says it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy. 
if God decided to not have mercy on us, then that's it. It's his decision, and it's final. There's nothing we could do about it, in other words, if God decided to not have mercy on us. Our salvation was fully dependent, 100%, on God's mercy reaching down to us. And that's really the point of this series. To not think at all more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. That we are nothing but a vessel of mercy. On the board, we're nothing more than vessels of his tender mercy and of his wonderful compassion. That's it. Without that, we, we don't exist. Or we're in eternal judgment. Romans 15, Romans 9, 15 and 16. We're nothing more than vessels of his tender mercy, as we just read, and of his wonderful compassion. So that means there's no room for any other options or any rationalization by man. There's no room for it. There's no little room for man to come in and take his little bit of credit on the side as a good little doobie. There's no room for it. We are, as we've already seen, disgusting sinners compared to God. He is righteous and holy, and he's a God of mercy, thank God. Rejoice in that, period. So look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. What's God's glory? His mercy. His grace. That's what makes him so glorious, not his power. That too, but you know what I mean. If you go to scripture, what do we say in, um, go back to verse 15. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. God said that to Moses after Moses asked God to show him his glory. Remember that in Genesis? Moses said, show me your glory, Lord. I want to see you. And God said, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's my glory. That's what makes me wonderful. Love. That's what blows us away about God, not his power, not all his wisdom even. The fact that he loves us even though we're guilty and rebels. 
So again, look at verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter not have, does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. That's nothing but mercy, right? <laughs> you people over there who were not my people, that everyone said were not my people, who rejected me even for years and years and years, I'm going to call you my people. That's nothing less than the mercy of God reaching down and waking people up to his glory, his grace. So again, verse 26. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. You know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were burned up in judgment. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. In other words, they thought it was about themselves and their flesh, and they could do it themselves, and they were good enough on their own. So they didn't, they weren't saved. But the person that admits they can't do it, the one that goes to God in faith, repentant faith, and says, Lord, save me, they're the ones that are saved. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, Jesus Christ, that is. They stumbled over him, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's the good news. On the board, were it not for God's mercy, we would have all been consumed as vessels of wrath due to our unrighteousness. However, in kindness, he transformed us into vessels of mercy through Christ. 
which we just read in Romans 9, 22, and 23. Again, were it not for God's mercy, we would have all been consumed as vessels of wrath due to our unrighteousness. But in kindness, he transformed us into vessels of mercy through Christ. And before you say, yeah, but I'm the one who believed in Christ. Do you really want to go there? Who's the one who graciously set the plan up that way? Who's the one who called you and woke you up from thinking you were self-sufficient and that you weren't a sinner? And who's the one who even gave you the faith to believe in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? So once again, without His mercy reaching down to us, we would be stuck in death for all eternity. Sin and death. Again, that's why this series... We're nothing more than vessels of mercy. So let's close by reading the point on the board one more time. Were it not for God's mercy, we would have all been consumed as vessels of wrath due to our unrighteousness. In kindness, he transformed us into vessels of mercy through Christ. Thank God. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, We're so grateful and thankful uh, for this lesson, for your word being so clear. And uh, Father, we ask that you help humble us so that we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We ask that you help us give you all the credit in our lives for anything good about us, Father. For saving us through faith in Christ. For sanctifying us, for helping us obey you even by grace through faith, not by our own works, so that no man can boast before you. Father, were it not for your mercy, we'd hate to think the results. But we praise you because that's your glory, your incredible mercy and compassion on sinners that deserve judgment. Father, we ask that you bless us as we go and that you help us Take these truths out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.